G'day everyone, welcome back to another episode of Spark Your Fire. Um, it's your host Dave Shi here and as always I've got the pleasure of my best mate, one of my uh, one of my best colleague in here to talk about property, John Camino. How are you doing? Hi there David, I'm very well, I'm very well, uh, good to see you again. Likewise mate, likewise. We are so close to Easter now, I think a lot of people have um, started taking Easter breaks so uh It'll be interesting to see what uh, what property market does this week, actually, uh, given the fact that it's a long weekend for mm. pretty much all of Australia um, and whether the numbers will still stand very, very strong, I think. But um, anyway, uh, listeners, we hope you're all having a wonderful week and uh, leading up to Easter. Now, the big topics um, this, uh, this, this time round, I reckon, um, we literally just missed the margin last time before the... the um, the banking crises that's actually unfolded across the globe. So I thought let's touch on that today, um, given the fact that, John, you've obviously got uh, very good insights around, um, you know, what's happening with the Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank, as well as the Credit Suisse, um, you know, having having all these crises around the world. Um, what, is it, what does it mean? I guess I want to look at it from a perspective that, you know, it, the US system is obviously very different to us here in Australia. So think of it like they they are they the way that the, the banks run things there is is quite is quite different to us. Okay. So I want to kind of tackle it to understand how come these banks fail, which I think you you obviously looked into it, why these banks fail, what can we learn from it, and whether Australian banking system is gonna be potentially at a jeopardy as well. Um, should we be cautious at all, essentially? So that's yeah, look, from two angles, I think. Where where to start? So, uh, so the crisis crisis is probably the wrong word. That they, they had a okay. major disruption in the in the U.S. banking system, and it was really focused on those regional banks. Now, in Australia, regional banks sounds like a weird thing. You've got all these little banks around, but actually, if you think of but 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 it's normal to have. It's normal to have small local banks because that's the best way for a uh, lender to understand a local property market, let's say, or local businesses. Hmm. So you don't want a national um, bank in <clears throat> based in Washington or New York lending to someone in Tennessee. You want a, like a lo- local bank. So that's why local banks emerge, big country and so on. And if you think of Europe's the same, Europe's got... We don't think of them as regional banks, but uh, Europe's got the National Bank of Greece and BNP Paribas in Paris. You've got all these local banks. They're, they're regional banks too, in a, in a sense, but they're country uh, country oriented banks. So um, the banks that went, a couple of banks went bust. Uh, actually, you're right. It was the evening we did our last podcast. So, uh, so uh, but we had nothing to do with it, people, I promise. Um so Silicon Valley Bank was the the first one that went, and that was the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history. Uh, they, prior to collapsing, Silicon Valley Bank was the sixteenth biggest bank in in the U.S. Hmm. So 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 material, and and then subsequently, a Signature Bank failed, which was a smaller bank, but but nonetheless significant. So 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 why? I think there are there are two questions, right? What why did it fail, why, and what does it mean it for us? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so a couple of two, two main reasons why Silicon Valley Valley Bank failed. Essentially, depositors were taking their money out, uh, and and Signature Bank had to cover it. But if you think about who the clients were, the clients were Silicon Valley tech 
startups. Startups, yep. Um, they were tech startups, uh, but they also had bigger. They had big um, clients like Rocku, eBay. So they had a lot of big depositors in there as well. Hmm. And when they started pulling their money out to pay rent or to pay salaries and so on, um, Silicon Valley Bank had to cover the liquidity gap. So they had to cover. So these weren't debts going bad. It wasn't that like they lent to Silicon Valley companies and it went bad. It was literally that deposits were being taken out and they had to cover it. Now, the assets that Silicon Valley Bank had to cover the deposits that were going out the door were long maturity treasury bonds. So when interest rates, rates were really low, Silicon Valley Bank bought all these assets to liquefy their bank. Um, but as interest rates were being put up by the Fed very, very quickly, the value of those bonds went down. And when they had to replenish their deposits, they would sell these bonds, but they would sell them for about 80% of what they bought them at. So they incurred these massive losses trying to cover the deposits that were being that were being lost. Um, so it's partly, but, but there's also some other nuances. Apparently uh, they spent eight to nine months without a risk officer. So the risk officer left and they didn't, uh, they didn't replace that, that person. Also the Silicon Valley bank was involved in, in you know, uh, politics or the politics of the day. And uh, they may not have been particularly, uh, uh, au with, uh, banking risks. So they were there was it was a lot of management problems there as well. They weren't they weren't a great management team. But right. essentially the if you had to boil down what the problem was, it was a duration mismatch. They had long-range bonds securing their deposits to fund a short-term cash flight that was mm. leaving from deposits and there was a mismatch and so they went bust. That's essentially what happened. Now, just to sort of put a ribbon on this, and one of the things that's not being spoken about a lot with Silicon Valley Bank is that while we know that they had uh, a big exposure to tech startups, um, the other thing that's not being talked about is they were banking about 70% of green energy projects. So if it, one of the, the jokes is you can get anything banked if you say, or get government funding if you, if you say it's climate change related. So you could have diabetes and climate change and you'll get a, you'll get a grant or a loan. <laughs> so these guys, these guys were heavily involved in, in green startups and green energy, like battery projects and those sorts of things. Hmm. So there could be a knock-on effect to, to the, that sort of movement to the, the economic viability of a lot of those projects. But generally speaking, it's good when, when, um, unviable projects get get eliminated I and mean, that's the yeah, creative yeah. destruction of the market yeah okay. so there is a there is a little bit of of that green energy component that's not really being discussed but to ta- answer your your final question what does it mean for us i mean very little i think in australia i think you know we most of us bank with the big four um our de- one thing i didn't mention actually is that the the fdic the insurer for deposits bailed out the depositors but not the investors so mm. all the all the depositors were whole um that would happen in australia i just think that there's s- such little uh in common with the um us banking system in australia we we have a we have a highly centralized banking system highly regulated highly protected which is why we don't do a lot of tech innovation in australia we we lend to real estate and that's about it uh but it also means that our banking system is is a lot safer so i don't see there being a problem 
That said, I don't think we're out of the woods in terms of the banking uh, banking problems because I, I mentioned before that duration risk, the impact of interest rates increasing as quickly as they have, it's gonna it's gonna impact a lot of companies. There's a lot of speculation. I probably shouldn't name names, but there's a lot of speculation that the next uh, banks that could be in trouble are Deutsche Bank and maybe even HSBC. And um, Deutsche Bank has been spoken about for at least 10 yeah. years about their derivative position being too big. But um, these things can, you know, the, the, when the tide goes out, um, so you never know, you never know. But but the, it, it could it could still resonate. I mean, I remember back in 2008, before Lehman went bust, there was Northern Rock, which was an obscure bank in north of England. And then it sort of went up the food chain to, to Lehman Brothers and, mm, mm. and their stern. So you never know. Mm. So you do think that there's uh, this is on the this is potentially only the start of the collapse of more potential banks around the world. Um, if if the if the central banks around the world continue their current trajectory of rising interest rates mm. to battle against inflation, then this is going to be an ongoing problem. Yeah, I think that I think we're looking at. I think it will take years, but I think that this will. This is the beginning of a big banking consolidation in the US. So you've got lots and lots of banks, and I think that uh, it's possible that they the, that the number of those banks will decrease. Now that mm. won't affect Australians necessarily, but it's yeah. it's not a good thing. You want a, a big competitive banking system. Now the conspiracy theory is that they want to. I don't know if we want to go there, but. Um, sort of centralized banking a little bit to roll out a digital currency. Now that okay. may or may not be true, but there, there's murmurings that, um, that that this is to reduce the complexity in the banking system, the number of participants, so that a central bank digital currency mm. can then be rolled out to fewer banks. But who knows? The CDBC that's kind of been talked yep. about for a while now is right. a part of the overall plan in that <laughs> sense. That's right. Uh, and who knows? The funny thing that I guess the, the the interesting thing that baffled me was, um, obviously straight away after the uh, after these uh, SVB and Signature Bank has gone into liquidation, the Fed jumped out straight away and said, "We will guarantee those depositors mm. that your money is going to be safe." Now, how they're going to get their money though? They can't print more at this point. I mean, we are trying to actually battle against inflation, so printing more money is going to go against, right? Because we're actually trying to tighten credit at the moment. So I don't know with all the balance sheet that's already in such a big red with Red of C in, in, in US Fed, how are they going to be able to guarantee these from like by liquidity? Are they going to print more, do you reckon, John? Or yeah, yeah. Have I, some other, they the, will have the to. Money the money supply has already st uh, st done a U-turn and started going up. Yeah. They've done a few things. You're right, they're, they're guaranteeing deposits. The, the FDIC does that. And then they cross their fingers that people don't don't take their deposits out. <laughs> so, but they also they also um, one of the other things they did more quietly was they said to uh, to the banks, uh, including the, the company that bought the signature bank assets, is that we will honour the the coupon value of the bond. So if you bought mm -hmm. it for a hundred dollars, we'll uh, even though it's only worth eighty dollars, we will give you um, uh, the hundred dollars back um, and. Uh, that that's um that's also how they how they liquefied the system. Mm, okay. Okay. 
cool. All right. That's good. Uh, thanks for the summary, John. I think, you know, you obviously, as always, express it very elegantly and <laughs> it's simple even for me to understand. So uh, I'm sure that helps our listeners to understand as well about what that means for us. Um, funny enough, though, I think Fed still increased their interest rate by 0.25% last month. Mm. I would have thought that having seen these um, these banks starting to collapse, they would consider maybe a pause, but they didn't. Mm. Yeah, they, they increased interest rates by 25 basis points to retain their credibility. I mean, the rhetoric has been that they're, they're inflation busters and they're, they're not going to stop until they put the, the beast back in the jar and all that sort of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, they, they they increased interest rates because they said they would and because what they said if they didn't raise rates would have no credibility. Um I think the market's it's 50-50 on whether there'll be more uh, interest rate increases. I think the bond market, which is they always say that the stock market lies, the bond market never lies. So if you want to make predictions, you've got to look at the, the bond market. And the bond market's suggesting there might be interest rate cuts within three months. Yeah, wow. Okay. Three months, three which months. is not what anyone is talking about, but that's what the market's starting to suggest. So the cycle of nature. Mm. We always said that they'd raise rates until something broke and um, – and and rates had never gone up as quickly as they had. It was almost uh, my ears were burning watching the the interest rate increases. But of course, there's too much debt in the system to increase rates that quickly. So um, it's amazing how resilient the economy's been, the property market, and so on. Um, but we'll wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Um, but I guess just following on on that, you know, even though Fed has increased, but RBA has decided to hold still this month in April. Mm. So that's kind of a bit of a relief for Australian mortgages, especially with everyone just starting to see and started to feel the effect of the 10 consecutive rate rises. Um, but I guess, I guess a bit like what you're saying yet, uh, we're not completely out of the woods as well. You know, a lot of people were optimistic about, um, you know, are we at the top of the rate cycle? At the moment, I mean, it's like you said, you know, we, they continue to raise rates until something broke. And we're seeing something that's kind of broke in the US or the Europe um, banking system. Luckily, Australia banking system is a lot more robust in that instance. But, you know, I think RBA has taken a, a cautious approach at the moment in the sense that they wanted to pause this month in order to be able to see and gather more data and decide what they're going to do. Uh, next month. So I think there's a couple of things from the minutes, which uh, was um, was kind of, sorry, statement, I should say, was kind of interesting. The minutes hasn't been released, but the statement has been released uh, straight away. So their priority is still returning inflation to target. Um, okay. That's still the number one priority. Um, and they are still seeking to return inflation to 2 to 3% target range while keeping the economy on an even keel but the path to achieving a soft landing remains a narrow one. So at the moment, we are still on a very tricky path in terms of because, you know, the more, the higher the interest rate rises, the more likelihood that it's going to break the economy, right? But so how much is enough for us to be able to just get out of the woods without having to break the economy, without having people losing their jobs and without property market completely crashing, basically. That's what they're all trying to try to try to juggle at the moment is my understanding. Um, now, the board expects some further tightening of monetary policy may well be needed to ensure that inflation returns to target. Okay, so 
it's a pause. I think it's the key here is it's a pause. It's it may not necessarily be the top. Okay, although a lot of people were kind of speculating. Look, it's enough. Don't do any more. People haven't feel the hurt yet, and they will. Um, but you know, I guess the decision to hold interest rate steady this month provides the board with more time to assess the state of the economy and the outlook in an environment of considerable uncertainty, including what we just talked about from a global banking perspective. In assessing when and how much further interest rates need to increase, the board will be paying close attention to developments in the global economy, trends in the housing spending, and the outlook for inflation and the labor market. Okay, so household spending, mm. uh, basically, and the how and, and the inflation, the inflation trend, which I think last month it's now down to six point eight percent, so which is good. It's below seven, so I think maybe it's a bit too early for us to tell because we're just about to go into Easter, and I reckon people will be spending for traveling again. So hopefully the ugly head's not going to re up again next month. But um, if the inflation figure doesn't continue to go down, then unfortunately there might be a few more rate rises. That's still required in order to get the um, um, yeah to get to get the um, to get to where to they they want it to be. The board remains resolute in its determination to return inflation to target and will do what is necessary to achieve that. So that kind of concludes in terms of their stance. It's a pause at the moment. We need a bit more data. We want to basically wait and see to see what's happening. Funny enough, though, there's a lot of uncertainty in that statement, John. I feel there's a yeah. lot of uncertainty. It could go either way. It could go either way. It really comes down to the data that's to be released in the next couple of months to see whether we have really, whether the peak of inflation was really happening in December and whether we have actually gone through, or there could be a second spike potentially on the inflation data. And this, I think, funny enough, reminded me of the the SQM research published uh, last year in regards to a few different scenarios. I'm, I'm not sure whether you remember, right? There was a worst case scenario yes. where yes. we thought that we got out or we got the inflation under control, but it didn't. And then mm. the interest rate had to continue to go up That's in right. order to be able to combat that. So hopefully that we're not moving into that path because um, I think the uh, it's going to be above way above 4% from memory and then property market is going to take a huge hit on that basis. So it is a narrow path in summary at the moment. We are RBA is trying to trade it carefully by, I guess, balancing everyone, um, every everyone's needs to a degree. And they do acknowledge that a lot of households have not fully felt the increases as yet. But they will, but you know, there will be more people that will feel that as we progress through throughout 2023. So yeah, I mean a lot of the 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 scholarship on the uh the the second phase of inflation where it's sort of the, you think you're on top of it and it comes back. Mm. That's based on what happened in the seventies and eighties. There were all these false starts. People, you know, they'd they'd hike rates, they'd killed inflation temporarily. And um uh, you know, Volcker was accused of not raising rates quickly enough um, and then dropping them too soon. All those sorts of all those sorts of things. Uh, so back back then, inflation came back just as they thought they were on top of it. And I think that's the reason why you know, if it rhymes, it might look something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I always look back at those periods of time and just say there is just so much more debt now. Uh, it's it's hard to, hard to. See the parallels. Feel. Besides, we're in a general stagflation. I agree with that. It's hard to see uh, the the patterns playing out the same way. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. 
It's crazy. <laughs> there's, there's one other sort of, there's one other curveball when we talk about interest rates. And I, I don't know anyone who's talking about this. So it could be my own paranoia. Sure. But I really do think that the the rate rises are loosely re- or, or, or directly or indirectly related to the, the Ukraine war. Um, we, we know that sort of when Russia invaded Ukraine, they we, we sort of locked Russia out of the SWIFT system and froze their... US dollar treasury holdings and all these sorts of things. And I, I I can't I can't prove it. I just think that part of the reason rates have had to go up is as part of a financial uh tool in the arsenal in the Ukraine war. Mm. Uh so you know, we know that the US dollar has been weaponized in some ways, and a stronger US dollar is a is a point of strength for Western countries, and we are part of that USD orbit. So I, I feel that as as long as there's a hot war in Ukraine, interest rates will stay high in order to uh, sort of keep a lid on oil prices, let's say, or mm. other commodity prices. Yeah, we'll see. Mm. Okay. Mm. Interesting. All right. Um, okay. Well, so that's the summary with the RBA cash rate this month, which is good. Gives us everyone a bit of uh, time for a reprieve to uh, to get their feet uh, stable. Um, okay, a couple other topics that we want to just probably touch on briefly. Um, so one of the biggest builder construction company in um, Melbourne, Porter Davis, has gone into liquidation this uh, earlier this month. So that's left the the building industry well that's we all know that i think a lot of construction companies are struggling but having a sizable company like porter davies um actually gone into liquidation is definitely a huge hit um to the already to the already suffering construction uh industry at the moment so um they are actively looking for uh, I, I think the liquidators are actively looking for builders who's going to be able to take over uh, the unfinished projects, but uh, I guess the key lessons that I got out of it is actually some people will actually lose their deposit in this scenario. Uh, it's an unfortunate fact, but uh, the way I read it is um, uh, the insurance is actually not kicked in until the time when the planning permit comes in. So I think what Porter Davis may have done is they haven't actually put in the relevant insurances in place until planning permits actually been received before they start commencing the constructions and plan for that. So anytime before, anytime between from the time you sign a contract up until the time planning permits has actually come through, which might be a couple months um, till maybe even six months or even 12 months, depending on how the, what the backlog is like, right? At that point in time, the consumer may not have been protected uh, in that instance. So if you are engaging a builder at the moment in current environment, it's probably worthwhile for you to actually touch base with your builder. Um, if you have already signed a contract, make sure you got the appropriate insurances in place. You know, follow up with the builder to see have I got something in case if the builder actually goes bust tomorrow, am I going to be able to get my deposit back? Because you know we're not talking about small money here. You could be easily losing five, six digits depending on how much you put in. So that's probably the moral of the lesson I learned out of the Paula Davis. There's not other things. I mean, you know, you can't control how a construction company operates, unfortunately, in this instance. Um, but, you know, the best is to be able to protect yourself uh, as much as you can. Any other thoughts on that, John? Any other things that you could add? No, I think I think you summarized it great. I mean, it's we came back, it's duration mismatch again, right? So the, mm, the construction okay. company commits to a price and inflation uh, 
burns their profit in the meantime. So they commit to a price that's fixed, but their input prices increase. So it's that duration mismatch, mm. um, which you've you summarized brilliantly. So that's a, a business model that's hurting builders at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, poor logic data. One of our favorite, mm. favorite stuff to talk about. Um, and we spoke about how quickly things are changing. And it's amazing to see how quickly the numbers are changing at the moment as well. You know, just before we came on air, you know, John and I kind of had a bit of yarn to say, oh, you know, we used to see properties kind of being very stable, stable, stable. But now it fluctuates so quickly, it started to started to match the like the, the share trend or even the Bitcoin trend in terms of, you know, having a huge spike here and there uh, in such a short period of time. Um but on the positive news, I guess, for those Sydney siders is that uh, Sydney has had a really positive month um, this month. And we are talking about a 1.4% month increase. And that's, if we annualize that, that's a double digit figure. Yeah. That is a double digit figure. So it's amazing how quickly they turn, right? I think last month it was like 0.2 or 0.3%. And now, you know, the, it's, it's changing to 1.4% already. Um, and if I break it down to houses and units, you know, houses was doing 1.5%. So it was increasing at 1.5% just last month. Units has also started to go, go up uh, at 1% at this point in time. So it's it's firing in all directions, John, at the moment, the way I read it. And, um, you know, for the first time as well, it's the national figure is not a negative figure. It's now a positive 0.6% increase across the dwellings. So... Are we out of woods yet? Are we are we going to start to see a positive? Have we have we reached have we reached the bottom and have we passed the bottom, John? Uh, without my crystal ball here, so yeah, look, it looks like it looks like we bottomed in November. That's what it certainly mm. felt like, and that's what the data suggests as well. Um, uh, yeah, we did half a percent last month and one point four percent in Sydney this month. So Sydney's the best performing capital. Um, and it was looking cheap at the end of last year. I, I, I follow the CoreLogic Daily Index, which comes out every day, obviously. Yep. And uh, April's going to be even stronger than, than March at this rate. So wow. we'll see. Okay. Um, I feel like there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. I don't think that there was enough uh, burnt fingers uh, from the 2021, uh, sorry, 2022 price crash. Uh, so I just think that there was just money on the sidelines. I just don't think that many people got burnt and all that money is getting deployed now in what looks like the bottom of the market. You know, we do our gold to real estate ratio on those, um, on those videos. And, and no matter what the interest rate is, when something's cheap enough, it's cheap enough. Uh, and so that, that seems to be what's happening. And, and, um, the, the rental yields are making Sydney very compelling because what's even tighter than the sales market is the rental market mm. it's it's just um yeah the the rental market is really really hot yeah and that's driven by basically no supply um at all isn't it and we're still with construction companies going bust like porter davis yes. it's just going to make it even harder um on an already already backlogged uh shortage of construction dwellings or new construction dwellings that's about to hit so I think the rental shortage is going to continue in the next couple of years. Unfortunately, there's no way that I can see they've got a solution in the short to medium term. Which, funny enough, I think I, I actually posted something about it yesterday as well. Um, the the way that we we spoke about how easy it was to get credit 
maybe a couple of years back, you know, back in about 2015, 2014, mm. before before APRA really put the handbrakes up. And at that point in time, you know, there was a lot of there were a lot of people, investors who were able to purchase maybe four or five properties in a year. Those days are gone, basically. And it's so difficult now even just to get, say, two properties. So perhaps in the short term, and it's just my opinion, a short-term uh, way to, to to be able to count against this is they need to ease lending. So that way investors can come back into the market because that's the quickest solution. Rather than having to build more, if you're able to get investors to, to, to jump into the market and provide enough incentives, investors will come back into the market. They will provide dwelling for renters, which would then make more properties available for rent, which yep. would hopefully be able to reduce that rental crisis a bit. I reckon yeah. that's probably the most effective solution in the short term. I I, to I totally agree. I think that you know this is when regulation backfires, uh, and to give a bit of a nod to the free market, when um, before APRA stepped in to to regulate uh, lending, because now lending is highly dependent on income. In mm -hmm. the old days, you could buy a property, you could get some equity, and you could divert the equity. And as long as you could sell the property, the bank didn't mind. You didn't have to have this whopping big income because serviceability wasn't necessarily the main game in town. Now everything's about serviceability. So what does that mean? High income earners and only high income earners can buy properties. So that that's so real estate it has become the realm of the very wealthy and the very high income earners. In the old days it was a very a very bottom up um mum and dad type of you know type of thing, but now only high income earners can get um can get loans and that's because of the hyper regulation i'd much rather we go back to a looser uh system um not completely no cowboys but something a bit looser that it's not all about serviceability and uh, i think that would sort itself out but yeah 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 I, yeah so we'll see what the uh what the government do there uh but yeah i think it's obviously a very very important question issue that they're trying to tackle in terms of housing affordability uh, in terms of the rental crisis moving forward. Um, so let's see uh, what can be done. Um, actually, on that on that basis as well, uh, you know, we've had our New South Wales election, state election, mm. and um, Labor has uh, took over New South Wales as well. I think I saw the uh, the Australia map now, except for Tasmania, everywhere else is red. So uh, well right. done to the uh, to the Labor team. Um, now, what does it mean for the for the property for New South Wales uh, in that sense? So, I think there's a couple of quick changes I'll just go through very quickly for, uh, for our listeners. Um, the so the biggest change is for, on the first home buyers front. Um, the Liberal government has introduced potentially what they call the first home choice. So you can either choose to pay stamp duty upfront, or you can choose to pay annual tax uh, for the life of your owning the property. Um, so the idea was to basically be able to save your stamp duty money um, and be able to put that in as part of a deposit to help you purchase the property. Now, Labor has confirmed that they're going to scrap that. Okay, so this, unfortunately, this change didn't come along. I think it only kicked in around January and it may only go up to 30th of June. So, you know, it might it will probably get scrapped from 1st of July this year. Um, so for those people who want to take advantage of this, you probably need to act quick at the moment. Okay. I believe it should get acknowledged and will probably get grandfathered moving forward or still get, you know, but 1st of July onwards, uh, there won't be an option to be able to pay annual tax and the, and, and the men's government is probably going to push towards, uh, paying stamp duty upfront again, because it is an important source for the government. Now on a positive side though, 
they are going to increase the uh, uh, the stamp duty exemption from $650,000 to $800,000. Okay, so in other words, beforehand, you don't, you, you don't have to pay stamp duty up to six fifty. dollars Now you don't have to pay stamp duty up to eight hundred dollars and that's probably going to kick in on the 1st of July as well. Um, from eight hundred dollars to $1 million, you will get discounted stamp duty. Okay, so they've effectively increased the threshold for the stamp duty exemption and the discount to cater, I reckon, mostly for the um, New South Wales and Sydney properties because of the higher purchase price as such. Um, but the question remains, can people still afford to borrow that much is, is going to be the question, right? Like if you continue to, at the moment, the lending is already tight. So, you know, we're talking about maybe five times now, whereas beforehand, you know, people can easily get up to six times DTI or even close to seven times if required. Now it's even very difficult to get five times. So if you're on a 100K income, your borrowing capacity might only be capped around $500,000. So unless you have a big deposit, then you still can't, you're still getting nowhere near the 800K or the $1 million. So I'm not too sure, personal opinion again, not too sure whether this is really going to help or not. But anyway, um, that's where we stand. Um, John, anything you want to touch on there as well? No, only only to say, I mean, not in terms of property, I think that I think that she'll be steady as she goes. I, I don't think there's any major disruptions. The first home buy grant changes. Yeah are a big deal i mean i think that i think that people like the choice um but because it, it had only been introduced so, so briefly i don't think it'll have a a big impact removing it it's it was wasn't in for long enough to be a structural part of our market um i mean i like that they've uh, banned um mobile phones from the the classroom that that's the biggest takeaway for me <laughs> and overall i mean all the infrastructure projects that were good for sydney they're all in place so i don't think that will you know city metros and those sorts of things and my broad philosophy on these things is that changes in government um are healthy as long as it doesn't happen hmm. italian style every year uh I, i'm i'm you know i think these things are healthy so it's uh, i wish them all i wish them luck I heard they're scraping uh, the four, two of the four proposed uh, metro lines um, at the moment as well. Yeah, oh, I haven't heard that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe look into that. I think the north, the north line from Talawong to airport is still going to remain, and the south uh, to the new airport is going to remain. But the but the Parramatta or the Westmead to the airport is in question now. Okay. So is Bankstown to the new airport is also in question. Mm. So. Yeah, so I don't know what Labor government's going to do there, but maybe yeah. because of funding issues or different priorities, and maybe they're going to put those on hold. So who knows? So I mean, the, the city metro comes online in twenty twenty four. They're going to lot get a lot of kudos for that, and then you've got the, the you know the 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 metro west. I think mm. uh, a couple of years after that, so that they'll be in power for the uh, ribbon cutting of a lot of these really important infrastructure program uh, programs. So it'll be good to see how Sydney changes. Yeah, indeed. Um, okay, last but not least, uh, clearance rates. Do you want to touch on the clearance rates uh, for Sydney, John? Sure. So the clearance rates, anytime they're above 70, that's a good thing. And in the last weekend, they were uh, 74% in, in Sydney. Uh, yeah, really good. Same as Melbourne. Melbourne was 74%. Brisbane was 76%. Adelaide was 80%. I mean, I still see Adelaide as overvalued, but they've got they're selling like hotcakes and the rental market is the tightest in the country so mm, they're, they're doing well uh it's Ca canberra um it's down to 57 percent, but canberra is not really a, an auction market and in terms of like wh where the markets are hottest um so really it's segments not um uh 
not not anything else. So it's really the the upper north, the the lower north shore, the uh, eastern west. suburbs. Inner inner west is really hot at the moment. I'm hearing you know records in Concord and places like that doing mm, really well. Wow. Um, Northern beaches. Northern beaches is is really back as well. They're doing really well in the in last weekend. Actually, the highest highest clearance rates were in Canterbury, Bankstown, uh, oh, Northwest, wow. okay. and the Northern beaches. And interestingly, units had a slightly higher clearance rate than houses. But generally speaking, except for um, except for Perth and Sydney, units are outperforming houses across the country, mm. except for Perth and Sydney. Mm. Mm, yeah so clearance look the market the market's really strong at the moment so we'll see how you know how much gas it has but uh really strong and these are the figures before rba announced this month's pause as well so i don't know what's really going to happen uh given the fact that this is a long weekend so the numbers may not be as stunning uh, most people are going to be away but um next week onwards will be interesting so we'll see yeah and look, stock comes on after Easter as well. So at the moment, there's there's uh, it's pretty scarce, but um, stock comes on after Easter. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to supply. I wonder if the supply continues this way, then the price is going to continue to go up because of the fact that shortage of supply. But if the confidence level started to restore from seller's perspective, which means there'll be more sellers putting their properties onto the market, does that mean we're going to see more of a flat trend moving forward rather than a v-shape trend moving forward so what i'm hearing Mm. yeah what i'm hearing is that because the market is moving up vendors are saying no i definitely want to wait until the end of year to put my uh, my property on the market because now i know i'm going to get a higher price if i wait it out um when it was going down it was like oh man how long is this downturn going to last what do i do i guess i'll i guess i'll just sell it now they're really holding off so i actually think that in the short term the supply problems are actually going to be exacerbated mm-hmm. um and then and i think all eyes on the spring selling season yeah okay. um v shape yeah price wise we're, we're having a bit of a v shape and i think yeah. it'll continue for a few more months Oh, all right. That's pretty much it, John. Anything else you want to add? Nope. Nope. All good. All right. Okay. Well, thanks, listeners, for joining us today. Uh, um, Like I said, you know, everything that we touch on today is definitely just uh, general advice, not financial advice. So if you're looking for anything specific, please do check with your accountants, financial planners, mortgage brokers, whoever. Um, But um, otherwise, have a lovely Easter and uh, we'll be back again in about two weeks' time in that episode of Spark Your Fire. Cheers, John and David. Bye.